From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The Senate passes a $95 billion bipartisan bill with defense aid for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. But will Speaker Mike Johnson try to block it? Plus, New Yorkers go to the polls in a snowstorm to pick a successor for the congressional fabulist George Santos. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, Kate Batchel, Daryl Dell, Kim Strassel, and Faith Bottom. After a long night of speechifying, it was about 5 a.m. this morning in the Senate when this bill finally passed with about $14 billion for Israel and $60 billion for Ukraine. But in the end, the vote belied that overnight drama. The vote was 70 to 29 in the Senate with 22 Republican yeses and 26 noes. Let's start with a clip of the Senate Majority Leader Democrat Chuck Schumer on the message that he would now deliver to Speaker Mike Johnson. I would hope to speak to Speaker Johnson directly. And my message is this is a rare moment where history is looking upon the United States and seeing if we will stand up for our values, stand up to bullies like Putin and do the right thing. I will say to Speaker Johnson, I am confident that there's a large majority in the House who will vote for this bill. I am confident there are many Republicans in his caucus. I know I've spoken to a whole bunch of them who feel strongly we ought to pass this bill. And I will urge uh, Speaker Johnson to step up to to the moment and do the right thing. Kate, to start at the beginning, what is in this $95 billion bill that the Senate has now passed with a pretty solid majority? And what do you make of the contents? Well, I think one of the reasons that it commanded a solid majority is that while the focus is on how many dollars are for Ukraine or it's billed as a foreign aid bill, the bill really is a substantive down payment on rebuilding U.S. defenses. And I think it's important to think about it that way amid so much political polarization over Ukraine. So let me go through a couple of quick hits of what's in this bill about 60% of the top line funding is fed into the U.S. defense industrial base to get moving on replenishing our own stocks. For instance, there's $26 billion in this bill that is replenishment funding for the Pentagon to replace weapons that we've given to Ukraine. So even if you don't support Ukraine, surely you would support restocking the weapons we have already sent them. There is $3 billion in this bill to help expand the submarine industrial base expansion. The Navy really wants more submarines to compete with China, but we're struggling to make them. And this has uh, helped develop workers and some of the other problems we're having in building those submarines. There's $11 billion in the bill that is supporting U.S. troops that are working overtime in Europe. Surely this is something that should command bipartisan support. We have extended ships in the area and aircraft and are working them harder than we normally do. So, of course, we want to pay for the maintenance and the cost of all of that. And then, of course, there's about $15 billion for Ukraine security assistance, which is basically allows Ukraine to buy weapons that are then made in the United States that we sell them U.S. weapons. So that is just a rundown of the basics of the Ukraine section. But there's also money for Israel to really help build out their Iron Dome missile defense and also some foreign military sales money for our Pacific partners. So that's really the thrust of the bill and why I think it did get 70 votes is because it's a much larger bill that deals with much larger stakes than merely Ukraine. It's really a bill about what's going on in the world as a whole and whether the U.S. is going to be able to defend itself. Kim, where does this legislation go from here? You heard the message from Senator Chuck Schumer to the speaker on the other side of the U.S. Capitol. But here is what Speaker Mike Johnson is saying 
The mandate of national security supplemental legislation was to secure America's own border before sending additional foreign aid around the world. Now, in the absence of having received any single border policy change from the Senate, the House will have to continue to work its own will on these important matters. And Kim, the reason I think that is a fascinating line for the speaker to take, and you heard some members of the Senate also making that argument overnight, including Utah's Mike Lee, is uh, my understanding was that this was the Republican position that we needed some border changes in this bill. And lo and behold, we got a bill negotiated by the Republican Senator James Lankford that included some border provisions, which Republicans then rejected. And so, Kim, where does this go in the House? Because it seems to me that Speaker Mike Johnson does not want to get to yes. We've gone full circle and it's now become somewhat absurd. As you say, the argument was we need a strong border security provisions. That's exactly what was negotiated. The minute it was released, it was declared dead on arrival in the House. By the way, I would note that one of the arguments was we don't even need border provisions because President Biden has all the power he needs right now to do everything to stop the problem at the border. Now that the bill has no border provisions in it, we've apparently dropped that line again. And now we're saying that we must have border provisions again and that the bill is dead on arrival because it doesn't have border provisions in it. It's really quite absurd. And I think to your point, it does seem to be Johnson at this point, the tail wagging the dog, the House Freedom Caucus and Donald Trump deciding on a whim day by day how they're going to feel about this as an excuse not to pass it. There's a couple of ways that this can go now. Each of them, though, have their own risks. One is that Johnson, if he really was committed to getting this done, I think that's still uncertain. He could try to just simply attach it to a must-pass piece of legislation. One problem there is there isn't a lot of those around right now, in particular because some of the, for instance, individual spending bills aren't necessarily must pass on their own, although we will have to do something about a coming shutdown. That would court a lot of blowback from his Republicans, though, if that was the way he went. He could put it on the floor. This would be my preference. Tee it up, have it get to the floor, let people amend it. If Republicans think there's a problem, then work their will on the floor and change the bill in a way that they think will make it work. That has a lot of risks to it as well. So right now, the thing that most people seem to be talking about is a discharge petition in which Democrats could go around the speaker to put this legislation on the floor. At the moment, every single Democrat, 213, has signed a discharge petition. You need a simple majority to get there. They would need five Republicans to sign on. And this is also Johnson's risk, which is there is a sizable contingency of Republicans in the House that do want this aid and this money for the very strong national security reasons Kate outlined. I don't think it would take much if it looked as though this really were dead to maybe get those five Republicans to sign on and get this onto the floor. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more on this in a moment. What if AI could help your business deliver mission critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create.
Welcome back. Kate, a couple more points from the Senate debate. What do you make of some of these no votes from senators who present themselves as hawkish on foreign policy, including Tom Cotton and Lindsey Graham. And can you speak a little bit about how the Senate Republicans worked on improving this bill over what President Biden originally requested in aid to these countries? Yeah, I think some of those no votes, the politics of the border have consumed so much oxygen on Capitol Hill. And so they are using the border fight as an excuse not to vote for Ukraine funding, which I think is unfortunate. I also think some of the GOP, outside of those hawkish senators that you mentioned, some of the GOP criticism to Ukraine aid has been, one, we provide too much financial aid, too much economic aid. We're paying salaries or pensions. Um, You hear that line a lot. And Europe should do more of that. Well, in this particular case, the Senate bill cut by about 30 percent, by about $4 billion, the amount of direct budget support that President Biden requested. So that's an improvement. The Senate also included a clause trying to coax out a strategy in Ukraine and the objectives that the Biden administration attempts to achieve there which has another been a core argument that there's no strategy in Ukraine, that we just, this is a blank check. So these bills have tried to answer what legitimate objections exist. And I would just give you three concrete examples of the way that this bill improves our ability to defend ourselves and to prevail in a future fight. So this bill gives about $5 billion to helping get our 155 artillery rounds up to 100,000 rounds per month. This is the artillery that the Ukrainians are consuming in voracious quantities. We were at about 14,000 shells a month before the war started. But now, even if Ukraine gets some of those shells, having that capacity to produce 100,000 rounds a month would make a huge difference in our weapons arsenals. A second quick example is our Patriot air defense missiles. This bill would take us to 650 missiles a year from 550. These are the missiles Ukraine's using to defend their skies from Russian cruise missiles, a very scarce munition, and it would make a difference by the hundreds of how many we'll have over the next few years, while some are worried about a tense Pacific environment, for instance. And just lastly, real quick, the bill gives about $133 million to increase capacity for making cruise missile rocket motors. And here's why that's important. Some of my sources are really concerned about how many Tomahawk missiles we're using in the Middle East right now as we're trading fire with the Houthis. But one reason why we can't make more quickly is because the scarcity of these underlying rocket motors. And so this bill would invest money to start to fix that problem. So again, there's really been a bipartisan consensus over the past couple of years that we don't have the weapons that we need if we were to get into any sort of protracted fight. And this bill really starts to get at some of those underlying problems and try to fix them. And I hope that commands a lot more attention as the House starts to look at the bill and consider passing it. Kim, the risk here for Republicans, I think, is that I understand there's frustration at what has turned into sort of a stalemate on the front there in Ukraine. But there are all sorts of reports about supplies and munitions on the Ukrainian side starting to run low. And if what you have here is a bill to help replenish some of those supplies that passes the Senate in a strong bipartisan manner and then is held up by Speaker Johnson and other Republicans, even though a majority of the House would also be willing and happy to vote for it and get those supplies over to Ukraine's defenders, I think that what is going to end up happening is regardless of the criticisms that Republicans have of Biden's approach to this and his lack of a real public message explaining why it is in America's interest that Vladimir Putin's invasion not succeed, Republicans will end up owning 
postponing whatever happens. If you end up with a Ukrainian breakthrough on the front and drive to take more territory later this spring, it is not hard to imagine this argument boomeranging on the Republicans who stood up and blocked this bill. The optics and the politics of this will be absolutely terrible for Republicans. And what they're doing is making the equivalent mistake to what I think Democrats have done in the last couple of years, which is that in both parties, you have a minority that is a distinct minority when it comes to the country's views on things, but yet it has an outside voice and runs the party, as it were, because it's louder than everyone else. On the Democratic side, it's progressives. Okay, the progressive viewpoint is not one that is widely shared, even among Democrats, certainly not Republicans. And yet it has forced and pushed a president Biden into all kinds of positions that ended them up sideways with the electorate. Republicans are doing the same thing here with Ukraine. Donald Trump has issues with this particular bill and continued Ukraine funding. There is his loyal following that absolutely agrees with that. You might even be having, unfortunately, a growing number of Republicans that are there. But the majority of Republicans still believe in a Reagan-like strong national defense. There is certainly a lot of support for the president in his support of Ukraine among Democrats. And Republicans are going to look like the body as a whole, however, that is standing in the way of the United States fulfilling its commitments and bonds with some of its allies pushing back against dictators. That is not a position the Republicans have been in in decades. It's not a winning position. And it's kind of remarkable to me that they are allowing themselves to get into this position. Hang tight. We'll be right back with the election today in New York's third congressional district. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. It has now been a couple months since the House expelled the fabulous Congressman George Santos. And now New Yorkers today are going to the polls to decide who will replace him. And we have with us here today Faith Bottom, who recently did a deep dive on this race for the journal. If you want to go read her piece, it is under the headline, Can Republicans Hold George Santos's House Seat? But to start with, Faith, why don't you give us a sense of who these two candidates are and what the issues are that they're raising? You have the Democratic candidate, Tom Swazi. He's a known quantity in New York. He was born in Great Neck. He then became mayor of Great Neck. He was elected to the House in 2016 and then reelected two more times. So people have a very good sense of this candidate. He's been around in politics a long time. He tried to run for governor. And then on the Republican side, you have Mazzy Pillip, who is a little bit of a mystery. She was born in Ethiopia She then immigrated to Israel and is now here in the United States. 
And it's a really interesting race because it's really about national issues, the three I's, immigration, Israel, and inflation. A lot of attention has been brought on immigration. Mazzy Pillip is running ads attacking Tom Swazi for bragging about how he got ICE out of Nassau County. And Tom Swazi then is now, you know, going back and forth a little bit on immigration. Immigration has been the main issue this race. I don't think there's been a whole lot of polling, but there was an Emerson College poll that showed it pretty tight. Tom Swazi leading with 50% to 40% for Pillip. Let's listen to a couple clips of the ads that each side is running. These are from the Republican Campaign Committee and the Democratic Campaign Committee. Another murder committed. Another illegal immigrant arrested because of open border radicals like Hochul's handpicked candidate, Tom Swazi. Swazi opposed penalizing sanctuary cities, voted against notifying authorities when an illegal immigrant attempted to purchase a firearm. And Swazi even bragged that he kicked ice out of Nassau County. A crisis on our border, murder in our streets because of radicals like Tom Swazi. The NRCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. Mozzie Pillip won't answer questions about her agenda. Mozzie left before taking any questions. She was whisked away. Pillip is part of the extreme wing of the Republican Party that wants to take away your rights and benefits. They ban abortion even in New York, even in cases of rape or incest, and make massive cuts to Social Security. Banning abortion, cutting Social Security with an agenda that extreme? It's no wonder Mozzie Pillip is hiding. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. Kim, it can be hazardous sometimes to look at these special elections as bellwethers for what's going to happen in November. But it does seem to me like you see some of these themes that the parties are testing out and particularly as Faith describes on immigration, which Republicans, I think, are expecting and hoping to rely on when they make the case against Joe Biden and the case for Republican House and Senate. When it finally became clear that George Santos was kaput, I just assumed that this seat would go to Democrats, in part because if you go back and you look at the math and the history of special elections, usually when somebody leaves office because of a scandal, there's an enormous built-in advantage to the other party. And this is already a very close district, as it were, so advantage Democrats. But there's a lot of fretting right Right now, going on among Democrats, that in fact these issues are so huge uh, immigration, as Faith mentioned, and inflation and Israel, and that Swazi has spent too much time defending himself on them and therefore playing to her strengths, playing on her issues. People were noting that it was only in the last couple of days when he tried to start connecting her to the George Santos scandal and actually called her George Santos 2.0, but that was pretty late in the race. Now, there are a few things that are also counting against Republicans. They still have that time-worn issue that because of a lot of fear over elections, they depend a lot on turnout. There is obviously a snowstorm, an issue going on in New York today that could hurt her. The other issue is, as Faith was mentioning, Sometimes when people are less known and they claim an outsider status, it can help them. In her case, so little is known about her. And remember, this district is still reeling from the fact that they elected a guy who nobody seemed to know anything about and, in fact, turned out to have been a lot of things nobody thought he was. And so 
that has been working against her a little bit too. Both great points. It is snowing pretty hard here in New York. Big flakes coming down at about a 45 degree angle out the windows as we record here. A great day to strap on your cross-country skis and go down Fifth Avenue if you want. And so turnout is going to be fascinating. Another thing that I would add in here is just that Republicans, as you heard in that ad, are trying to brand Tom Swazi as an extreme leftist and notable that he ran against Governor Kathy Hochul as a moderate. He was the guy who could run the governor's office better than Hochul, who could bring crime down, who could lower taxes. And so I do wonder how much that is playing into what's going on in voters' minds, Faith, this idea that they know Tom Swazi, he's been around a while, and he's not an extremist in their minds, and they just don't know a whole lot about Pillip. Yeah, we just don't know very much about Pillip, and it's a really huge risk to take after the whole George Santos scandal. You're putting your faith in another candidate that voters just don't know very much about. The idea of painting both candidates as extremes is a little bit harder to say for Tom Swazi simply because he's been around for so long. But for Mazzy Pillip, she's a wild card. We don't know. Kim, what do you make of this idea that turnout is going to play hugely into the outcome here? It is fascinating to think about how these special elections could play out in normal times when you're expecting everyone to go out to the polls that normally comes out. But it seems like the two candidates here in this really big snowstorm are facing a challenge in getting out the voters. And so some of that may depend on who is better organized. And again, I tend to think that Tom Swazi as a political professional is a guy who is maybe cut out for campaigning and getting the vote out in a snowstorm better than the newcomer. Not only has he had experience there, but obviously the Democratic National Committee, all the groups and outside organizations that are helping on the Democratic side are known and have become extremely good just in the past few years at banking votes ahead of time. And again, Again, the Republicans continue to suffer from this problem of depending so much on same-day turnout. Now, you've seen Ronna McDaniel at the RNC um, and other Republican leaders trying to change that, beginning to voice their concern that you just can't win elections that way anymore. I mean, essentially, you're saying that you have to make up in one entire day what Democrats have been working on for four weeks or five weeks. That's a very tall order. And I know that they've been trying in this district as well to try to bank a few of those votes earlier in the game. But this is another example. We see it every time. Look, elections do not always happen during sunny weather. Most of the time they do not. And we've seen this repeating itself in a number of scenarios, not just at federal elections on big election days, but in these special elections that a few little weather hiccups can make all the difference, especially as we're seeing closer and closer races these days. I think this is going to end up being a very close election, too, which is astonishing because the district went for Biden by eight points in 2020. I mean, you have two polls out. Both came out on February 8th that have a Swazi up by four points. But still, that's remarkable that in a heavily Democratic area that Philip could be doing so well. Thank you, Faith and Kim and Kate. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button and we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.